du meine Arbeit für richtig hältst, ob du glaubst, dass ich fleißig gewesen bin, dass ich gearbeitet habe, dass ich mich in diesen Jahren für dich eingesetzt habe, dass ich anständig meine Zeit verwendet habe im Dienste meines Volkes. Gib du jetzt deine Stimme ab. Wenn ja, dann tritt für mich ein, so wie ich für dich eingetreten bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. My name is Blake Hamilton, and today we're going to be covering the power and authority topic for Nazi Germany. Today I'm joined by Luke Wilson and Sam Fechner. They're going to give us a little bit of an introduction. Luke's been on before as well as Sam. Uh, Maybe they'll talk about what they particularly like out of the Nazi topic, some things that have stuck in their mind, maybe a quote or whatever. And then we'll jump into looking at our focus uh, section, which is we want to talk about a part of this topic that can sometimes be forgotten in people's revision. And that is looking at the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles. So we're going to start with Luke. Luke, say hello to our listeners. Hello everybody, it's uh, Luke back again, and um, I really like the Nazi topic because it's quite interesting to see how Germany sort of came from this position of being quite a large player in the world to becoming so, I don't know, corrupt and Hitler was in power and he wasn't the greatest guy, so it's kind of interesting to see why that happened. Cool. Thanks, Luke. And Sam. Hey, everybody. Sam back again. And I'm similar to Luke as I really enjoy the this Nazi topic just to see how Hitler got his power and just the, the, the aftermath of what he did when he was in control for so long. Cool. Thanks, boys. And I totally agree with both of your sentiments of what you're saying as well, that I think as a surface level, we've all heard about Hitler. We all see these ideas that, you know, he's behind the Holocaust. He's this Nazi, nasty, (laughs) terrible guy. Um, But when you peel back and look at his rise, um, you're able to see that this is a situation where the conditions have bred the outcome, really, that if the conditions weren't the way that they were, which we're about to talk about, then perhaps someone who thought this way, who wanted to act in this way, um, like Hitler did, like the Nazis did, wouldn't have had any footing to get started. So we're going to start off with Luke, and he's going to give us an overview of the Treaty of Versailles. So what is the Treaty of Versailles? Why is it being signed? Like, what period of time are we in? Probably a good place to start. Rightio. So the Treaty of Versailles was signed in June of 1919 uh, in Paris, which was at the end of World War One, And basically it was the 
kind of like the peace negotiations between the Allies and Germany. And funnily enough, Germany actually wasn't invited and neither were any of the other defeated powers. It was mainly between the big three leaders of the victorious nations, which was Woodrow Wilson for the United States, David Lloyd George of Great Britain, and George Clemenceau of France. Um, yeah, so basically they concluded that uh, Germany had to pay a lot in reparations disarm themselves they lost a lot of territory due to the treaty and uh, had to give up all of their overseas colonies rightio um luke i wanted to ask specifically why do you think that because we can sum up that the treaty was really harsh why do you think or who intended for the treaty to be so harsh for Germany? Uh, I think Clemenceau was really pushing for the, the treaty to be quite harsh because France was one of the sort of main battlegrounds of World War One, and it was really torn apart. And so Clemenceau, his whole goal in the treaty was to protect France from getting attacked by Germany again. Uh, in contrast, like Wilson wanted to sort of elevate the Germans back up and re-establish the nation. Same with uh, Lloyd George, but I think Clemenceau really pushed them to uh, make the treaty harsher so that Germany couldn't get back on its feet and attack them again. Yeah, absolutely. So you got these three people coming to the table to come up with these demands. Um, if you want to think about it as like a sliding scale, you've got Clemenceau on the revenge side, the extreme. Um, to the other extreme, you have Woodrow Wilson, as you've said, who contrasts completely to the French. The United States are barely involved in World War One. They only get involved right at the end. And now you have this uh, Yank coming over to, to Europe with his 14-point uh, plans inspired by his Christian beliefs and democracy. And it's like, hey, hey, we should all just get together, form a buddy-buddy group and have free trade and just uh, disarm through talking, complete optimist. And the British are somewhere in the middle. They've lost a lot of money. They've lost a lot of men. Um, however they haven't been invaded so they don't see that they need to be as harsh as the french um who else do we need to pay attention to in this uh signing of the treaty who else isn't happy about the terms of the treaty other than the germans luke uh italy was um not real happy about the the german sort of thing like they wanted to take a lot of um, power away from them and a lot of their territories away, which uh, Wilson opposed to, but the other leaders sort of pushed him down because they thought he was a bit naive. Yeah, and also the Japanese are kind of in the same boat as well, aren't they? Yeah, they kind of got a 
sort of a bad end of the deal because they came in and lost a lot of their people, but the they were sort of forgotten by the big three. Yeah, and it that would come down to um, I guess to racial sort of racial sort of tensions and thoughts at the time because one of the things that the Japanese also were like happy to support from the USA was this idea of racial equality being like proposed as like one of the things to be upheld in the League of Nations but I think themselves the same as like China and whatnot that this is over a hundred years ago and that stigma is still very very strong um, is there anything else that you would like to add about the treaty? Because next we'll just talk about the aims of the leagues of nations. Um, I feel like the treaty was, like you said, it was really harsh. And like forcing a country to pay a ridiculous amount of money to disarm and lose also a ridiculous amount of territory and give up its colonies is obviously the reason that uh, World War One came about in the first place was due to that sort of unrest and creating that, realistically it created a very similar situation of unrest. So it wasn't the smartest move, I think, by the big three to really humiliate the Germans as a nation. Even like they'd just lost the war and so they were already quite, you know, angry about it. And then to go on to humiliate them in front of the world was probably not the best move. Yeah, and that's the key. It's this humiliation. Like, the the Allied forces don't even set foot into Germany. That their Kaiser flees, the Kaiser flees to Holland. They put in a new provisional government they're hamstringed into being forced to sign this treaty as well so the average german on the street the like the soldier on the street it's just like like what the hell just happened like like we didn't give up and that's what's going to be like boiling underneath um league of nations what were the aims so the countries that did sign up to be a part of the league of nations what were they hoping to get out of this could you tell me maybe three things? Uh, yeah, so when the League of Nations was signed between the superpowers in Great Britain, France, Italy and Japan in the beginning, they just the main focus was, in simple terms, to bring peace and to practically stop the aggressive wars that were were going on after World War One, and um, so the the founders of the League of Nations they they were focused on disarmament, which was just trying to just trying to keep everyone from using their military power in the wrong way, yep. and then preventing war through collective security, settling disputes between countries through. Ne- negotiation and diplomat diplom- diplomacy and improving global welfare so just <clears throat> all up just pretty much trying to make the world a more more peaceful and cooperative place especially so that there was no 
not unnecessary lives lost and civilians killed for for no real reason just just to settle disputes between um countries yeah that's perfect um let's just think about this for a moment um you got germany not being allowed into this new group that is being made do you think that this was a well, like one of the contributing reasons why germany went down a path of you know wanting to support a group like the nazi party yeah for sure i think the fact that the the germans weren't involved in the in the league was just it was sort of disrespectful to them almost saying that they weren't they were either weren't a big enough power to be involved or they were just too much of a flight risk and they might um not uphill uphold their end of the bargain and and they might um <clears throat> commit to a war or, or some some sort of dispute with another country i think that just fed their their anger and then their, their want to just be noticed by the rest of the world and to be to be respected and and taken seriously i, I think yeah no totally totally um i'm just looking over my list that i have here of a couple of things and maybe we could bounce off each other um militarily what like what are the germans like at the moment now sam after the signing of the treaty of versailles they're they're pretty weak on numbers they've obviously they don't have much going on so they're they're a bit I wouldn't say soft, but I would say they're not at full capacity, so that they can't really go out and attack and participate in a successful war on their end. If they if they were to engage in any sort of um, dispute, they would they would most likely lose it and lose a lot of a lot of their their military power and, and civilian lives. Yeah, so their their army is like you said, it's being being handicapped. They're only allowed to have 100,000 men in their army. Uh, their U-boats, which they were using extensively in World War One, they're banned. They're only allowed to just have six battleships, which the British and the French are going to be really happy about. And they're not allowed to develop an air force, which the air force is going to be one of the things that dominate and the Nazis use to great effect in World War II. Um, what about the money, Sam? How much... Can you remember how much money um, the reparations were, the bill for the blame? Uh, no, I can't, can't remember a figure. No, uh, that's all good. I've got 132 billion gold marks. Um, pretty unreasonable. Where do you think this money's going to come from? Um, yeah, well, it is a lot of money, and especially for a, an economy that's that's struggling post World War One, it would if the country didn't have sufficient funds to give, they'd probably be looking elsewhere, looking to other countries that other allies to support them get through this and and to help them repay their debt and yeah. Yep, and Sam's definitely hit on a good point. So. One of the things that the Germans and a lot of the Europeans will do is they will take out loans. They'll take out a bunch of loans and 
the country that is giving out a lot of these loans is coming from the United States, which is all well and good during the 20s, the roaring 20s, until you have the, um, the Great Depression, which one of the things that the Nazis capitalize on is that they are these doom and gloom, I guess, doomsday prophesizers. That's part of their political platform. So um, when their prophecy does come to fruition, that uh, like the currency hyperinflates and everything goes to everything goes to hell, um, they're seen as like like the correct messengers. It's like, oh, they were right. Um, Luke, I'm just going to throw it back to you. Um, in the early days, when the Nazis are trying to come to power, because when we go to our next group, we're going to skip over like the beer hall putsch and anything like that. Are the Nazis really an organised political group? No, well, really in the early days, it's kind of just like a bunch of people with the same ideas and they decide they want to form some sort of a group and early on they're mainly just sort of thugs, like they just go around trying to like take what they want kind of thing and like you said with the beer hall putsch and stuff, like they're trying to take things by force which overall never works out for them. Yeah, and they're trying to copy the, like, the Italians and Mussolini. They're like, yep, this is a great idea. The conditions are right. Let's go. And then their beer hall putsch fails and Hitler gets thrown into jail. Um, that's really where we're going to see a bit of a reawakening of Hitler and he decides to take a more political stance. And we're going to save that for next episode. So... Huge thanks to you both for jumping on and doing this. This is, um, again, one of these sections that gets glossed over a lot, but it's good that you guys could come on and talk about it, and we know that we have it in our toolbox now. So I'll get you guys to sign off, starting with Sam. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I uh, hope you got a bit out of it, and, yeah, come back for the next one. Cool. And Luke? Yeah, again, thanks everyone for listening and yeah, hope you learned something. And again, we can tell on our analytics, if you're listening from Israel, i got one question. Why? <laughs> Why are you listening to us? Um, I'm sure there's something else you could be listening to. Thanks again for joining us on the Modern History HSC podcast. Um, we'll see you again on the next episode. <laughs>